Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Hey, it's, we're overdue for a partner highlight and uh, for you to hear an update from a partner. And today we actually have one of our other partners that we partner with on the mission field. Mike Neglia is here with us again today, and he's going to share. He's a pastor of a church. Mike, Rachel, and their three kids are in Cork, Ireland. It's in the southern Ireland or in this far down south. Um, but he's going to teach the word to us today and give you a bit of a brief update throughout that process. I'm thrilled that he can be here rather than us just putting a photo on the screen and telling you about what's going on with them. For many of you, you're, you're now familiar with them, which I'm very, very thankful that we have partners like this. But before he comes up, I'm going to have our readers come up. They're going to read to you from the passage Mike is going to teach from in John's Gospel. So you can clap for a reprieve from Ecclesiastes and then open a Bible to John's Gospel. All right, John 20, 1 through 18. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths laying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels sitting in, in white, or two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Thank you so much. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is uh, Mike, as you've already heard. I'm, I'm in town for the uh, Calvary Global Network um, Conference, uh, which is taking place uh, tomorrow. I was also in a six-hour board meeting yesterday, so it is good to be out of there, and I'm really glad to be here. Olive Branch uh, Christian Fellowship, I, I love you guys. One of my, uh, is it okay to have a favorite church? 
Second favorite. My favorite church is in Cork, Ireland, and uh, this one is uh, is number two. Really appreciates um, the values, the way that you live them out, and I'm glad to be a beneficiary of your investments, um, not just locally, uh, not just on this street, but across across the world. Um, last time we were here, we um, shared a few updates, and my wife asked for some prayer requests, um, specifically our, our hunt for a permanent church building. We've been in a, a high school gym, not unlike this, for quite a long time, and uh, we felt like our time was up, and we'd been hunting and searching for a place. And I, I got on a plane Friday morning, but on Thursday at like 4.59, right before the end of the day, I used this pen to sign a lease for a place. So we're really excited about that. It's going to be a big kind of process of getting the warehouse ready and transforming the dirty warehouse into a church sanctuary. But we're excited about the next stage of our church. Again, hey, nothing wrong with meeting in a high school gym. Just want to emphasize that. A lot of, a lot of God's glory has shown up in high school gyms over the years. And um, so but we're excited to move into that. Uh, you prayed, and thank you so much. Uh, my kids finished up school um, on Friday, and so summer holidays have begun, and we're looking forward to more and more time um, as a family. I'm here on my own, and I wish I was there with them, but uh, yeah, it's kind of like conference traveling season. So anyway, that's kind of a bit of an update. Uh, we heard John chapter 20 read to us, and um, I've got some things to say about that passage and about the resurrected Jesus. Um, let's briefly pray together, and then we'll work through the resurrected Jesus and what it means for you and me. So, uh, risen Lord Jesus, uh, it's been so wonderful to sing your praise. It's been so great to uh, greet one another um, in your name. It's been wonderful to even just experience the, the wonder of being forgiven for one more day. Uh, thank you, Lord. Thank you that your mercies never run out, that you are not tired of us, Lord. Thank you that you're disposed towards us with a gracious, kind demeanor. Um, help us, Lord, to believe that in the depth of our being. Um, I pray that as we look at your interaction with one woman, Mary, um, that your heart on display towards that woman would help the women and men here gathered today. Uh, we need to be able to agree with her. We want to be able to say, I have seen the Lord. And so, Spirit of God, may you breathe upon uh, this, this passage, this time together. Help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, if I could summarize all that I want to talk about for the next few minutes in one sentence, here it is. I realize that attention um, sometimes is hard to maintain over a whole sermon all the way to the end, so I'm front-loading the important stuff right now. Here is my sermon in one sentence. The resurrected Jesus brings lasting restoration to broken people and to a broken world. Uh, we're going to see that over the course of glancing through these 18 verses that have been read to us. The resurrected Jesus. First, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. When you read, you begin with ABC. When you sing, you begin with Do, Re, Mi. When you start this sermon, you begin by talking about the resurrected Jesus, okay? So here we have the this, you know, what would be an Easter sermon, right? Uh, but here we have the ongoing good news. Every Sunday, we gather together 
on the anniversary of this event. Week by week, it's built into our schedule and our rhythm that on the Lord's Day, we gather together in sunny Southern California or rainy Ireland to celebrate that on a Sunday morning, not unlike this, Jesus Christ walked out of the grave. And you know what? Christianity, it's not a philosophy for living, although it has philosophical implications for living. And Christianity is not just a pleasant hope for dying, although now and at the hour of our death, doesn't Christianity bring incredible comfort? But I would say that in addition to those things, more than that, Christianity is based on the reporting of an event. It's not just concepts and ideas and theories, but an event happens and that impacts everything else. So we're asked, we're invited, in fact, we're summoned to change the way that we think about living and even change the approach that we think about and approach our own dying based on the event that's described in this very passage. Uh, first off, I just want to say, I believe this is true. Maybe some of us grew up with creeds like the Apostles' Creed. Maybe we could say that I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. And on the third day, he rose again. All right. Here's my liturgical brothers and sisters. All right. Thanks. <laughs> or even if you didn't grow like you could guess, on the third day, he rose again. Anyway, so this is something that Christians confess and have confessed for thousands of years, not because we made it up, but because it's an event that took place. As we heard the story read in those first 10 verses of John chapter 20, uh, we see it kind of gradually becomes apparent. It kind of starts out as a, as a guess or as a logical inference. There's confusion, and so there's people guessing, well, something happened, maybe the body's missing, I don't know. It's told in a gradual, unfolding manner. It begins with the discovery of a tomb, and then we see that it's empty, there's details, there's explanations that are posited. It all reads like a, like a messy eyewitness account written from the pen of somebody who's telling true history. And this is the way the actual history is, is written. Oftentimes, it's confused. Oftentimes, there's details that at first, they don't seem that important, but they're, they're included because they're real. They don't add to the literary value of the story, but they're written as if it's an eyewitness we have later on the description of a foot race that takes place to the tomb. And we have the seemingly inconsequential detail of who run the foot race. Sorry, who, who won the foot race that was run between Peter and John? Anyone know who won the foot race? It was John, the author of the Gospel of John. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? We see about the recently vacated grave clothes. We read about all these details, and again, they're not necessary to include, but they're written because it actually happened. I believe this is real. Uh, also, the inclusion, the, the emphasis upon the role of women in seeing and reporting this is an, an undesigned coincidence that actually helps us to see the credibility of this. I'm going to quote from the IVP Bible background commentary. There's a slide that might come up. The witness of women was worth little in Judaism. When Jesus, that Jesus first appeared to a woman would not have been fabricated. 
and it shows us how Jesus' values differ than those of his culture. Even the later church did not always maintain Jesus' countercultural stance, and they would hardly have chosen such initial witnesses in an environment where this account would only reinforce pagan prejudices against Christians. Do you get this? It's the sort of thing that nobody would make up, but would report it if it was true, and it was. This is real life. What happened this morning, what happened on that first Easter Sunday, it was not something that convinced the gullible. It was something that converted the skeptical. So Mary Magdalene, when she was walking there on that dark Sabbath sunrise, she was not there expecting to see the evidence for the resurrection. We know that she and her traveling companions, they were expecting to anoint the dead body of their dearly departed friend. They were not humming the words of in Christ alone as they were walking there. They weren't saying, there in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. They weren't expecting that. They weren't gullible, hoping against hope that he was resurrected. In fact, it took convincing. Mary Magdalene had to be like, proven in exhaustive terms that he actually was risen from the dead. Again, this is not convincing the gullible. This is converting the skeptical. And so she ran to get Peter and John later on to tell the news the body had been stolen. She wasn't expecting resurrection. She was not ready to jump to that conclusion. It took him standing beside her and saying her name and convincing her before she recognized and before she believed. And it was her name. When she heard her name, that is what converted the skeptic. And didn't Jesus say himself earlier in the Gospel of John that the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Uh, I'm kind of going to be glancing around throughout this um, passage. And if you look at verse 16, we have what some people have called the shortest sermon in all of the Gospel of John. Now, maybe you guys have heard some long sermons in your life. Uh, well, here we have the very shortest one. Do you see that one-word sermon in verse 16? Let's say the sermon together. So Jesus said to her, Mary. And that one word, Mary's own name, spoken by the most significant person she'd ever known, what changed her whole life. She turned around. And if you'll allow me to be poetic for just a moment, in that one or two seconds that it took for her to turn around, it's like the whole world turned with her. A second before, there is a woman by a grave, and she is in the agonizing presence of unconquerable death. And then a second later, it says that she turned around and there's a woman in the highest human elation in the presence of the death conquering central figure of history. The rush that must have come over this woman in two seconds is unimaginable. And she is the first person ever to experience the personal bodily presence of the risen Lord. So in those five short syllables, the whole world became a different place. Mary, Rabboni. So the resurrected Jesus brings lasting, lasting restoration 
to broken people and to a broken world. I'd like to speak for a few moments about the lasting restoration that he brings. So the events that led up to this Easter Sunday morning, well, the whole Easter event, the whole weekend that led up to that, all of it is encompassed and comes to its climax there. The betrayal, the arrest, the trial, and then the other trial, and then the crucifixion, and then the burial, all of it led to this. The purpose of his suffering, and for now his exaltation, is to bring restoration between holy God and separated sinners. Sinners are accountable to God, separated because of sin, but something takes place this weekend that brings those two together. The sacrifice that took place. I mean, throughout the gospel accounts, throughout the accounts of his crucifixion especially, there's all kinds of sacrificial language. The authors want us to know that the events of Good Friday, it's not just a bad thing that took place to a good man, but that it actually is an intentional act of sacrifice. And as we kind of think of this imagery of sacrifice that's used throughout the cross, into the burial, and then now into the resurrection. We have in John chapter 20, the description in verses 12 and following of Mary leaning in and looking into the tomb. And what she sees reminds me, anyway, of one of the most important sacrifices in the whole Old Testament. There's a slide that kind of shows what she would have seen. We see that she sees that there's two angels on either side of an empty platform, which to me, I'm a little bit of a nerd. For me, that kind of reminds me of what took place in Leviticus chapter 16, uh, the day of atonement where there is the Ark of the Covenant, which has an angel here and an angel there. And then the blood of sacrifice was placed upon there. And the people of God's sins would be covered over for one more year based on the sacrifice that took place. And in Leviticus 16, there's a solitary figure that enters into an empty, darkened sanctuary once a year to apply the sacrificial blood between the two angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat. But instead of this once a year, on the 10th day of the 7th month, an annual repetition, here we have another solitary figure enters into a dark place, and perhaps there even was blood stained upon the platform in between the two angels. And there, it's not an annual, but it's a once and for all covering of sin. So we contrast between what would have been back there and then now as Mary stoops in and sees a very similar sight. So here's the main point of all this. So as a, as a kind of Bible nerd, I could just think about that and think, wow. But it's like, what's the point? How is that significant? The main point of all of this is that Jesus is the final sacrifice. He is the last offering. He is the sacrifice that puts an end to all sacrifices. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he does so fully freely, finally, forever. My friends, you didn't come to church this Sunday so that you can have a ceremony performed upon you that will forgive you for the next week. 
and then you have to come back once again. This event took place and ultimately, finally, freely, forever forgives. It doesn't need to be reapplied every year. It's not an annual event. It's finally settled in the mind of God. This means my sister, my brother, it means that you really are forgiven. If you trust in Christ, you really actually are forgiven. Even for that, he forgives you. That's something that we need to tell ourselves. Because I had a conversation earlier in the year with a kind of a, a hardened uh, man. He's older than I am, and he's a, a, part of, a part of Calvary Corp. And he is so troubled by something that took place over three decades ago. And when he speaks about it, he can't even look me in the face. His eyes just go downward. He, he's looking at the floor as if he, he's describing something that somebody else did. But the feeling of shame that he has is definitely in his chest and on his shoulders and forcing his eyes down. And it is, it is my wonderful privilege, my joy, my incredible duty to explain to this man, well, you know what? The blood of Jesus Christ covers even that. As we sang earlier on, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washes it white as snow. There's another hymn that says, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. So in a world full of, of guilt, in a world full of of um, the weight of all the times that we've fallen short. Maybe some of you, unfortunately, have the same... Uh, I'm, I'm In Ireland, I'm, what, I'm what's called the product of a mixed marriage. Uh, and the reason why I'm the product of a mixed marriage is because uh, my dad was, was Catholic and my mom was Protestant. <laughs> and so that's not so much of a big deal over here, but over there it kind of is. Which means that like I have inherited... So the combination of those chromosomes, I've inherited two different things. I've inherited a Protestant work ethic and a Catholic guilt complex. <laughs> so that means that for me, I am aware of all that needs to be done. And I have energy to devote myself for this and this, but I also know I'm never good enough. <laughs> I'm never succeeding. And so I, again, maybe some of you are of the same bent. And if so, I apologize. I'm so sorry. It, it sucks, doesn't it? So I need to tell myself and tell you the wonderful news that to be forgiven is actually real and it really counts. And it's not based on our performance, our earning, our deserving. It's not based on checking off this, that, or the other, but it's based upon what Christ has accomplished for us, not what we can accomplish for him. So the resurrected Jesus brings lasting restoration, not a temporary reprieve, but ongoing, lasting restoration. And who does he bring this to? Well, the, last, the resurrected Jesus brings lasting restoration to broken people and a broken world. Let's get to know one of these broken people. So who's the, well, okay. Who's the main character in John 20? Jesus. Who's the second main character? Mary, we'll say. Well, the answer is always Jesus. You're right. So that's a good job. All right. So Mary is one of the broken people that he came to bring lasting restoration to. From what we know about Mary, and, and guess what? 
she is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament. She is the second most mentioned woman in all the pages of the New Testament. She's actually second only to somebody else named Mary. <laughs> so we have a lot of content about uh, this woman. Uh, we know from Luke 8, verse 2, that she was formerly possessed by seven demons. I don't know what that means, but it does not sound good. All I can think is that her life was surely hellish uh, before she met the man from heaven. And maybe some of you, your mind's already jumping to this. Um, tradition states that Mary was a prostitute. Guess what? The Bible doesn't say that. Uh, you know who says that? Uh, Pope Gregory VIII, sorry, Pope Gregory VIII, the Great said that in the 16th century. Um, he said in a sermon that she was the same woman as the sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. The problem is uh, the Bible never says it the same person. And also it never says that the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair was a prostitute either. It just says that she was a woman who was sinful. So this is assumption upon assumption, and it's poor biblical interpretative skills, I would say. But finally, in 1969, the Catholic Church corrected that error. Pope Paul VI admitted the text of the Bible does not support that interpretation. Okay, why am I talking about this? <laughs> I'm actually, oftentimes, I'm quite reluctant to take kind of cheap pot shots at other, other groupings. Um, but I think it's worthwhile because on the one hand, um, this woman's reputation has been needlessly sullied, but also this is a lesson for all of us, for Olive Branch, for everyone else. Uh, this means that we don't just take a religious leader's word for it uh, when they say something having to do with faith or religion or the Bible, uh, that we want to be those people whose Bibles literally and figuratively, our Bibles are open. When someone's teaching with confidence and rhetorical flair, well, that's great. But what does the text say? What does the word of God actually say instead of just authoritative pronouncements from individuals? I think that's something that's important to say. But here's something else. Maybe you're thinking, well, hang on a second. It says there that, that Jesus brings restoration to broken people. And then now, Mike, you're spending all this time telling us that she actually wasn't very broken after all. W which is it? My friends, Guess what? You don't have to be a prostitute to be a broken person. It's not a matter of, well, there's this category of people and they're the bad ones and they need to be fixed. And there's those of us that have never been engaged in that and we're the good ones. My friends, non-prostitutes are just as broken as those that have been engaged or involved in prostitution. Okay? We're all, there's this phrase that at the foot of the cross, there is equal grounding for everybody. And so, on the walk earlier on, you know, this, this person who had been, remember, all that we know for sure about her is that she was set free from seven, seven demons, whatever that means. Now, as we recall and think about that walk that she took to the tomb that Sunday morning, remember, what do we know for sure? She was not singing in Christ alone. <laughs> she was not saying, he is risen, he is risen indeed. <laughs> she was not expecting a, res a, a, a resurrection. But I wonder, my mind has to wander, was she thinking, you know, the, the only one, the man who set me free 
from those seven demons. Uh, the only one who was able to, to bring sanity to, to a mind that just seemed to be scrambled up like eggs. He's gone. What does that mean for me? You know, it's thinking, well, are they going to come back? Is it, is it a bit like we have our, our phones, you know, and we, we unplug them from the charger? You know, it doesn't turn off instantly, but it runs out eventually. Is she thinking, is this the start of eventually everything coming back to how it was? But no, but Jesus brings lasting restoration to broken people. And so Mary Magdalene, she's one of those broken people, and she actually then is sent to other broken people. Let's, let's look back to, to verse 17. Like I said, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit throughout this text. But Jesus said to her, uh, let's just jump to the, the end. He says, go to, where is it, verse 17? Go to my brothers? Yeah, 17. Sorry, guys. Trust the Bible, not preachers. Sometimes I don't even know what verse it is. <laughs> yeah, verse 17. Don't cling to me. I have not ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them this. Go and tell them. So Jesus refers to the disciples, kind of the official 12, or at this point, the 11. And she says, go to my brothers and tell them this good news. There's a Puritan writer by the name of John Flavel in the 17th century. He wrote about this. He says, it is so kind of Jesus to refer to John and Peter and the rest of the lads and to call them his brothers without the least mention of their cowardice and their unkindness. Jesus, when he wanted somebody to pray with them in the Garden of Gethsemane, they all took a nap. Jesus, when he was hoping to find one kind face in the midst of being surrounded by opponents, they were nowhere to be seen. He needed them, and they left him. And then now, coming back, he's not there, and it's not like Terminator 2, Judgment Day, like, I'm back, and I'm coming for you. He's like, no, I want you to know, I want them to know that I still consider them part of my family, and they're my brothers. We know that right now they're scared, they're in hiding, they're locked in an upper room. They're so aware of their failures and their fear and their guilt. And then Jesus sends this woman, Mary, to go tell them the glad news that the tomb is empty, but more than that, that the Savior has risen. So these people, they are embarrassed. They're defeated. They're downcast. But Jesus sends a fellow broken person to be the one to go and tell them the good news. And if I could speak on behalf of Olive Branch, like, welcome to Olive Branch, you know, broken people being put together by Jesus, being used by him to help put together other broken people. Uh, welcome to every healthy Christian church. Uh, whether we admit it up front or not, all of us are a little bit messed up. We're being used by him. We're broken people sent to other broken people. So not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but he considers those who let him down so many, just a matter of hours earlier, they let them down, but he says, I'm not letting you down. I still consider you part of my family. And so final thought, the resurrected Jesus brings lasting restoration to broken people, but not only that, but also to a broken world. This is contagious. This is spreading. It starts with Mary. It goes to the disciples, and he has plans to take this global. 
a broken world. Uh, let's jump back to verse 15. Going back to the beginning of the conversation, uh, Jesus says to her, uh, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He says, Who are you seeking? What are you looking for? And then here at the end of the Gospel of John, kind of one of the last questions that Jesus asks is actually the same thing that he asked at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. In John 1, verse 35, the first words out of Jesus' mouth is he asks another group of disciples, who are you seeking? What are you looking for? Kind of reminding us that, that the object of our desire and the end of our searching is found in him and him alone. Doesn't that kind of remind you of Ecclesiastes? A whole book full of searching and the big questions. You know, Jesus through Ecclesiastes is asking, who are you seeking? And then here he asks Mary and he asks the disciples, chapter one, who are you seeking? And the answer ultimately is going to end up right at that man in the garden. So that calls back to that. And then the way that she answers is interesting. She, she thinks that he is the gardener. She asks him, like, well, where have you put him? You know, I, I suppose that you're the gardener, so I'm asking you gardener questions. So on the one hand, she's totally wrong. But on the other hand, she's kind of right. Because the man standing in front of her is the same man who said in John chapter 12, he says that there's a seed that goes into the ground and there in the ground it dies. And then it comes back and it bears much fruit. Uh, he's the one in John chapter 15 who says, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. We also read that the Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. The sovereign Lord will show his justice to the nations in the world. Everyone will praise him. His righteousness will be like a garden in early spring with plants springing up everywhere. My friends, the triune God is a gardening God. He's the world's first gardener. In the first page of the Bible, it says the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The beginning pages of the Bible talk about God planting a garden for the good of the people who dwell in it. And the very last page of the Bible talk about God planting and creating a garden city for the good of those who dwell in it. And you know what? In the beginning and in the end, he's gardening. And guess what? He's also gardening right now in June of 2023. And he's gardening in you. He's doing his work of gardening. For some people, that means that he is breaking up fallowed ground. Do you know what fallow ground is? It's when the topsoil has gone hard. And so there needs to be the hard work of a spade going in and uprooting and upturning so that plants can come in and, be, and, and give life through it. Or maybe he's watering some of you others. Maybe even this morning is a watering event. It's refreshing to hear the good old gospel again and again, and he's providing refreshment for you right now. Maybe he is weeding you, for some of us, removing things 
that never should have been there in the first place. And Jesus is getting his hands dirty in your life, tenderly reaching in and plucking things out. Maybe for some, it's the work of pruning, which is taking away good things so that something better can grow in its place. So Mary is wrong. He's not the gardener, but she's kind of right because he is doing his gardening work even today in us right now. There's kind of an interesting artistic motif that I came across a while ago, and I, and I love it. I, I like to do a good old uh, Google image search, and I, I recommend you guys do it too sometimes. Jesus the Gardener. Uh, we'll kind of show a few of this. This is um, uh, Albert Druher, a uh, 16th century etcher. Um, kind of just painting or, or etching, imagining this scene and what's in his hand but, but a spade. We can go to the next one, which I think is Rembrandt. No, not Rembrandt. I forget who this guy is. We could go to the next one. <laughs> there he is with a hoe and there with a, a spade. You can leave that one up for a moment. And, and you know what, guys? There's dozens more. It's just kind of this artistic motif that, that I think on the one hand, it's explicitly literalism and kind of misses the point. But I think maybe even now we could appreciate that it's actually, it's actually true in a deeper level as well. So kind of as a, a, final, a final thought before we close, um, I mentioned that his earlier question of who do you seek that's kind of a callback to the very beginning of John. But also, if we just think of what's taking place, it's a man and a woman uh, together alone in a garden. I think even that scene kind of is a, a, pull, a drawback to something earlier as well. Not to the beginning of John's gospel, but the beginning of the Bible itself, where there is a, a man and a woman in a garden. And it's our first parents. It's Adam and Eve. And we can think back to that scene, and, and that's kind of where everything went wrong, right? But here we have it reimagined, reenacted, redrawn of another man and another woman in a garden. And instead of a temptation that led to sin, which brought death, we have Jesus who was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane but he obeyed his father instead. And then, instead of blaming others, he takes the blame and the punishment for others' sin. And instead of sentencing all that have come after him to death, because of his obedience, Jesus wins our pardon and our forgiveness through his sacrifice. I'm going to close with a quote from Dr. Lucy Hogan. She says this, in the first creation story, God drove Eve and Adam, Adam out of the garden. But in the new creation, Jesus sends Mary out of the garden rejoicing. So what was started in that first garden comes to its restoration and recapitulation in the next garden. And then I also would say that this work of restoration, which began on Easter Sunday in that garden, brings forgiveness and new life to us and continues on until that next ultimate garden city. And here between now and then, we have Jesus the gardener tenderly working with us, pruning, plucking, watering, breaking up fallow ground, causing us to 
to flourish where we'd otherwise dry up. I know that usually there's a there's flowers that are right here. But you know what, guys? You're the flowers today because Jesus the gardener is at work in your life. So the resurrected Jesus brings lasting restoration to a broken people and to a broken world. I'm going to pray and we get to we get to sing. So Lord, we affirm and we confess with every Christian everywhere that you are Lord and that you are risen from the dead. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we acknowledge that you're risen, but Lord, help us to apprehend and comprehend and to to bring into our hearts and fold into our lives the implications of your resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that you are the divine gardener and that you are at work in our broken and messed up lives. I pray that we would yield to your gardening hand, um, whatever process, whatever is taking place, the painful pruning or the refreshing watering, the fertilizing or the, the harvesting. Lord, I pray that we would be yielding to you, we would be trusting your good hand. Uh, Lord, I pray that these songs of response can be, on the one hand, uh, an act of worship, but also, for some, even an act of surrender to you as a divine gardener. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.